Diana and Miss Rachel. And so look forward to that time for the children downstairs and for our time here together this morning as we continue on this series. We are now beginning the fourth week, so we're about halfway through uh, the 40 days of prayer that we have been joining in with our Alliance family. And uh, today we begin week four, which is reawakening to the Church of Christ. And as we have in uh, the past weeks, we've been reawakening to the glory of Christ. We've been reawakening to the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. We've been reawakening to the Holy Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of Christ. And then again this morning, reawakening to the Church of Christ. And as we've been doing, we're following uh, outlines that have been shared with us so that our Alliance family is all covering the same concept together. And uh, this morning's uh, outline that I'll be utilizing is by Leah Broach, who is uh, the Children's Ministry Director for the denomination. So Dr. Tony Evans once said that God has an embassy in history. And that embassy is called the church. The church is God's embassy to bring the values of the homeland into foreign territory. He goes on to say the church is not to represent the country that it's in. Rather, it is to represent the country that it's from. Listen to that last statement. The church is not to represent the country that it's in. It's to represent the country that it's from. See, when the church forgets its proper ownership, and that'll be one of the things we'll talk about, ownership, and when the church forgets the values, it'll be a second thing that we talk about this morning, the values of the homeland, and the homeland is heaven. It's no longer the embassy of hope that it was designed to be. It becomes merely a religious institution of the culture around it and ultimately misuses the name of Jesus. Listen to that statement one more time. When the church forgets its proper ownership and the values of the homeland, which is heaven, it is no longer the embassy of hope it was designed to be. It merely becomes a religious institution of the culture around it, misusing the name of Jesus. But when the church boldly steps into its Christ-given role, it possesses the very power and the very authority of Christ in the keys that have been given to the church and the kingdom that we read about in verse 19. So this morning, as we're looking at this concept of reawakening to the church of Christ, there's some sermon notes in your bulletin with, with more um, things that you can write if you're a note taker again up on the screen. We're going to be looking this morning first at two remembrances, things that we need to remember to be reminded of, and then an action to take as a, a result of that. So we begin with the first remembrance, and the first remembrance is to remember the rightful owner, to remember the rightful owner. Verse 18 that we read already says, Jesus says, And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades or the gates of hell will not overcome it, or some translations will say will not prove stronger than it. 
the main idea here is that Jesus is the rock on which the church is built. We sang about the church's one foundation. We sang about this, uh, that I will build my life on him. Jesus is the rightful owner and he is the rock on which the church is built. It's interesting that in this passage, there are two words that are used for rock. Jesus says, you are Peter. And in changing his name and in saying that you are, are Peter, he was saying that using the word Petros, Peter, Petros, which means stony, which means rocky, which means loose stones. This is what Jesus called Peter. We're all familiar, probably, if you've read the Bible, you're familiar with Peter. And Peter had some incredible successes. And he also had some absolutely incredible failures. Jesus used him, the Lord used him so mightily, in spite of his successes and in spite of his failures, he was still just human. The Spirit of God made him like a rock, but his humanity still kept him fragile, still kept him stony, still kept him rocky, still kept him prone to shift like loose stones underfoot. There's those times when you're walking along, if you ever go on a hike and you're walking along and you come close to the edge of a cliff and things get kind of shifty under your feet. That is the sense of what Peter is, is what, what Jesus is saying. You are Petros. You are Peter. And, and you're stony. You're, you're, you're strong and solid, you're, but it's still stony. It's still rocky. In your humanity, without the Spirit of God, there's still the possibility that you put your foot on the edge and still you're going to slip. You're strong and able to be built upon, but... You're not ultimately, Jesus says, on this rock. And when he says this rock, he uses the word Petra, which means bedrock or foundation. I believe Jesus was really saying in this, Peter, this is who you are. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build the church upon you. But ultimately, you're just stony, rocky, loose stones. The real foundation is me. I am the bedrock. On this rock, Jesus says, on me I will build my church. I'm going to use you mightily, Peter. But ultimately, ultimately, it's going to be built upon me. The scriptures speak of Jesus as the rock, as the cornerstone, as the capstone that the builders rejected. He is the foundation upon which the church is built. It's why we sang this morning, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. And if we're going to build our lives on anything, it is on Jesus and on Jesus alone. Jesus would use Peter mightily to build the church, but ultimately Jesus builds the church on himself. Jesus is the only one who's perfectly solid. He's the only one who is perfectly dependable. He is the only one who is able to be built upon. He is the only one that will not shift. He is the only one that will not crack. He is the firm foundation. He's the bedrock upon which the church is built. But the joy is he's still going to use people like you and me. He's going to use people like you and me that still can be shifty at times, 
that are going to get it right and we're going to get it wrong. He's still going to use us. What an amazing privilege that is. And we should still look to one another to follow. The Apostle Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. So the good things that you see in others, follow after that. That's Jesus. Follow out. Run after them. But ultimately, ultimately, we build our lives on Christ. Sometimes I joke around in the office a little bit about uh, I'm not a cool pastor. You know, there's the trend right now, the hip, young, cool pastor with the skinny jeans and, you know, the cool hairdo and all that kind of stuff. And, and I've said, if anybody ever sees me in skinny jeans, tell me to punch myself in the face, all right? <laughs> now, I'm not against that for other people, but can you imagine me in skinny jeans? It's just not me. And the temptation for all of us is to look at people and say, I'm building my life upon them. And, and, and when you see Christ in someone else, you're like, yeah, I want to go after him. I want to run with him. I want to run with her. I want to go and I want to live life. And I want to be a part of a church family where there's people like that. But understand this. Ultimately, we don't follow a person. We follow Christ. And the church's rightful owner the church's bedrock foundation is Jesus and Jesus alone. And I long for us more than anything. And I, it's so humbly and scary to say, follow me as I follow Christ, as Paul said. But ultimately, I want you to follow Jesus. Because he will never fail you. I'm going to let you down. I'm going to fail. But he never will. And so the church's rightful owner, the one upon which the church is built, is Jesus. We can run together, and please do that, in family together. But the church is one foundation, and the rightful owner of the church is Jesus, and Jesus alone. Second remembrance, as we, we reawaken to the church of Christ, um, before we go there, just remember 1 Corinthians 3.11, no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, and that's Jesus Christ. He is the one we build upon, Jesus and Jesus alone. Second remembrance is this. Remember the rightful place. We need to remember the rightful place. And what we're saying here is that the church reflects the kingdom of heaven on earth. The rightful place of the, king, of the church is to reflect the kingdom of heaven on earth. So you may wonder, okay, what's that mean? Remember the rightful place. You, you've seen things that are kind of out of place, Right? Things like this picture. That picture's on the wall in the right spot, but it's out of place, right? Or like this manhole. It's in the right spot, but somebody put it back wrong, and so it's out of place. Or maybe like this package of Fig Newtons. It's in its right place, it's in the right area and it's going to do its purpose, but it's out of place. Or that cabinet handle. It's going to get the job done in a way, but it's, right, out of place. And then I love this last one because I am so prone to this. Here in this... <laughs> if you can't read it, the one that's out of place is obsessive-compulsive disorders. I, I, I lean towards that, and so I found that one especially funny. 
It's going to get the job done in a way, but it's out of place. And so some of you are like me going, can I get into the picture and just push that thing over a little bit, right? This is when we're talking about being out of place. The church can be around in the culture, but if it's not in its rightful place, there can be some issues that the church will actually cause when it doesn't fulfill its purpose, when it doesn't reflect the kingdom of heaven on earth. That's the church's rightful place. And so the place of the church is to distribute kingdom values in the current culture. The place of the church is to distribute kingdom values in the current culture. And there were three that were, were shared, and so I'm going to speak to them this morning. And the first is this, that in the midst of our culture, specific to us where we're at, that we would be people who would seek grace instead of cancel culture. We hear cancel culture a lot, right? That we would be, the church reflects the kingdom when the church is a grace culture, not a cancel culture. In John chapter 1, verse 14, John says of Jesus, the word became flesh and made his glory, and dwelt among them, and the, and made his, and the glory of the Lord was among them. And he came from the Father full of grace and truth. Now that's really important. Scripture in the words that are written and the way that they're written is important. We may just say, okay, that's cool. Jesus came full of grace and truth. But I believe, and when you look at the, the ministry of Jesus, the order of which it is spoken is critical. Jesus did not come full of truth and grace. He came first full of grace and then truth. He never backed away from telling the truth, but he didn't lead with the truth. He led with grace. He led with engagement. He led recognizing that there are sinful people on this earth that he was going to engage with, and if he came first and pointed out all the things that they were doing wrong, he would lose his ability to speak to them. Think of the woman at the well. The woman at the well in John 4, that was total grace because A, a man never spoke to a woman. B, a Jew that Jesus was never spoke to a Samaritan. And three, this was a sinful woman that no one would have anything to do with. She was there at the well by herself because everyone else had disowned her. Jesus exhibited extreme grace in engaging this woman, which opened up the door to be able to speak truth. Friends, our culture has adopted the mentality that if you don't agree with me, I'm just going to cancel you. How will the church be ever able to reflect the values of the kingdom to the culture if every time there is someone who does something wrong, we cancel them? There has to be grace. We have to engage people recognizing that just like me, they don't get everything right and engage in relationship. Grace instead of cancel culture. A second value that the church can distribute is value to all people instead of racism and sexism. Value to all people instead of racism and sexism. 
In Galatians 3.28, it says, Paul says, Now there is neither Jew nor Gentile, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, all are one in Christ. In the midst of the differences, we must see things like race and gender as equal. Back on the table in the, uh, here in the sanctuary, there's a statement that just came out from the Alliance, and I would just reference this for you, for you to look at. It's very scripturally based, but it's a statement on justice and race that the Alliance has put out. And I would really encourage you to take this and to sit with it. You know, we live in a culture where these issues become very divisive. And for a lot of us, it's very easy to reject the idea of racism offhand. When we hear it, to react and to just say, I'm not racist. Or I shouldn't have to be held accountable for the sins of the past. I'm not. That's things back there. Why, why are we still talking about this? But I would just encourage us not to reject these things offhand if that's where you're tempted to go. But to actually sit with it, to look over scripture, to, to read through some thoughts that people may have and to be able to say, okay, Lord, would you show me? Holy Spirit, search me. Try me. See if there's any wicked way in me. See if there is any of this here that I need to be aware of. And in that area of gender and sexism, just to speak for a moment to us as men, you know, I, I think we have to be honest, guys, that we in our culture have more power than women do. And, and in the ways that we have power, to be able to look not for how it can serve us, but how we can use power to serve others and to serve women. You know, I, for everyone it's different. And I really had to come about a, a year and a half ago to a, a place where I recognized, man, you know what? I've been, I've been welcoming the service. I've been welcoming my position as a man <laughs> because it makes life kind of easier. But if, if, if this really is equal and I am the one in power, I need to use that and I need to die to myself more and I need to humble myself. I need to serve my wife. I need to serve the, the women in my life around. I need to look for ways to lift them up and to give them opportunities that maybe they wouldn't have to step into that. And so men specifically, we do have power. And I'll speak to that, just I recognize it. And I hope, guys, you would wrestle with that too and say, Lord, how am I using the power that I've been given as a man in this culture for the good of women to lift them up? To lift them up. So those are areas in our culture, just a few of them, to value all people instead of racism and sexism. And, and the last one uh, that was shared, and, and I really think this is an encouraging one for us too, is that salvation to all who believe instead of religious exclusivity or inclusivity. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 says, I'm not ashamed of the power of the gospel, for it's the power of God to save, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Salvation is for all people in Christ. Sometimes we can look and say, oh, yeah, God can save them, but I don't know if he can save that person. Or we're more drawn to this group of people than that group of people. And so salvation is for everyone. 
It's not exclusive. It's to, for all who believe. But there's also this thing of inclusivity too. And I just want to speak to that for a second. There is only one way to salvation. There is only one way to salvation and that is Jesus and Jesus alone. We're not in a world where, you know, this religion's going up this side of the mountain and this religion's going up this side of the mountain and this religion's going to this side of the mountain and everybody eventually is going to get to the same place. I know that's not very politically correct to say this, but there is only one way and that way is Jesus. And so we, we need to balance all of these. And, and that's why we need grace. <laughs> that's why it has to be grace over cancel. Because there is one way, but yet it's for all who believe. It doesn't matter. It's for all who believe. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved, Jesus. But there is just one way. It's Christ. And so the values of the kingdom, reflecting the kingdom on, of heaven on earth, is that we would be a place to distribute kingdom values in the current culture, but also that we would be a place, the place of the church is to re- reflect kingdom values in the culture, not to take on the role of earthly government. And, and this is where that kind of out of place thing happens. I, I would encourage you, if you if you're, have a Bible, or keep your finger in Matthew chapter 16 and turn to Titus chapter 3. So you make your way towards the back of Scripture. If you come to Hebrews, if you find the book of Hebrews, that's probably the biggest one. And then make a, a left turn back towards the front. Philemon and then Titus. So Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James. So if you're like, if you grew up in church, you may be singing the song, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James. Maybe that's just me. Okay. Meryl, that's how you do it? Yeah, I sing the song in my head. Not many people want to hear me sing out loud. Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. I want to read the first eight verses. It says this. Remind the people to be subject. This is Paul speaking to Titus. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility toward all men. Would you say that's the state of a culture right now? (laughs) At one time, verse 3, and so the answer to that is no, just in case. Verse 3, at one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But here's the reason that we do all of these things in the first couple verses. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. 
See, because of what God has done, because of the salvation that we have received in Christ, because of the mercy we've received, because of the washing of rebirth by the Holy Spirit, because of all that he has poured out generously to us in Christ, this is why we do verses 1, 2, and 3. This is why we are subject to rulers and authorities. This is why we are obedient. This is why we are ready to do whatever is good. Why we slander no one. Why we are peaceable and considerate. And why we show true humility toward all men. It's because we are saved. See, Jesus reflects himself. And and this, this may rub us a little bit. Jesus reflects himself through the church, not through politics. Jesus reflects himself through the church, not through politics. You know, sadly, we are at a point right now where the term evangelical is now being used as a political affinity, not as a religious identity alone. I would encourage you to do a little reading on the history of evangelicalism. It started as kind of a modern-day Protestantism to hold to the authority of scripture, to hold to we believe we are born again in Christ, to hold into the, the need to share the good news. Those are the, the key tenets of evangelicalism. But as time has gone, and specifically over the last about 40, 50 years or so, it has been moving so much towards a political influence that now pollsters and religious scholars, when they do religious polling, find that there are people who don't hold to Christianity or to evangelicalism in the religious sense, but identify evangelical politically. That, that, should, that should cause us to just go, hmm. That could, should cause us to say, how did that happen? How, how is it that there are people who don't hold to the authority of Scripture, who don't hold to the need to be born again for salvation, who don't hold to the fact that the good news needs to be shared here, everywhere, to the ends of the earth. How is it that people who don't hold those tenets would say, I'm an evangelical? And it may just be because we have allowed and and shifted the focus that the church is here, but a little bit out of the right place. Instead of kingdom values being what we are, are seeking to share with the, with the culture, and instead of Jesus being reflected through the church, could it be that we've allowed Jesus to be more reflected through our politics than through the church? Again, these are th- things we need to just sit with. I know when we hear these things sometimes, for some of us, we may be like, oh, that's wrong. But to hold them before the Lord and say, okay, is that, is that possible? What do you have to say, Lord? See, Jesus ultimately uses the church to counter the culture, and here's how. This is the application, that it would be on earth as it is in heaven. On earth as it is in heaven. Jesus said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So the church brings eternal values 
to humanity presently. The church brings eternal values to humanity presently. And so to do that, we use the kingdom, use the keys of the kingdom with the great confidence that hell will not prevail. This whole idea of binding and loosing is delegated authority from Christ. He gives it to Peter and he gives it to us. Binding and loosing is about saying in heaven, because what happens in heaven, in the kingdom coming to earth, what happens in heaven ultimately will affect what happens on earth. And so he's delegated the authority to the church to bind in heaven evil so that it is bound on earth. And to loose in heaven the work of God so that it is loosed on earth. This can be confusing to think about. But so often we try to do it the other way. We try to deal with things on earth so that it affects heaven. Instead, Jesus says, what you bind in heaven will be bound on earth. And what you loose in heaven will be loosed on earth. It is why he teaches us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. See, he already has a desire for what he wants to do and it's already being done perfectly in heaven. That's where the rule of God is perfect right now. What we as believers and what he has delegated to us is the authority to bind in heaven those things that are here on earth that are not good so that they're bound there and to loose in heaven the things that are need to be loosed here so it comes to earth. We pray sometimes backwards. We pray, God, would you do this here? And instead, Lord, in heaven, what is true there, would you bring it here? There's no evil in heaven. So we bind it in heaven so that it comes to earth. The work of God is free to move in heaven all the time. So what is true in heaven, we loose it here on earth. It's a, the, the, the right way to pray, but it's often the opposite way in which we pray. With the great confidence that hell's power will never defeat the true church of Christ. Back to verse 18, the gates of hell will not prevail, will not be able to withstand the assault of heaven through the church. Do you hear that? The gates of hell will not be able to withstand the assault of heaven or the assault of the church on hell. The keys of the kingdom have to be used though. God will do things in this way collectively through his church, not individually. In chapter 18 of Matthew, if you turn there real quick. In chapter 18, it says this. Chapter 18, verse 15. It says, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you've won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen, then tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen, even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or tax collector. Here's how to operate in the church. I tell you the truth, verse 18. This is why sometimes like, how does this all work? Why does he say this here? I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth, so he says it again, will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you that 
that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. See, God intends this ministry of binding and loosing not to be done by, hey, I'm going to go bind and loose. I'm going to go welcome the kingdom to come here to this earth by myself. It is in the context of the church that it's done. We are not able to do this ministry because he intends it to be a corporate ministry, not an individual ministry. I coach basketball in the community winter league around here for a couple different age groups. And my team that I coached at seventh and eighth grade last week, we had five players. If you know basketball, you have to have five players. And as it came to the end, we had one player that had four fouls. And in basketball, you get five fouls at this age before you're out of the game. So he had four fouls. And then late in the game, we had one of our players get hurt. And so he came out. And so I asked the referee, can I play with four? And he's like, yeah, we can play with four. I said, now what happens if the guy who has four fouls, if he gets fouled? If he gets a foul and he's out of the game? Well, you can play with three. He said, technically, the rules make it allowable that you can play with one person. If you think you can win, you can play with one person against their five. Now, he said, I don't know if they make a basket how you actually throw the ball in because in basketball, you take it out and then you have to throw it into another player. He's like, I don't know how that works. But technically, you could play that way. Thankfully, we ended the game four on five and we lost. But, you know, it makes me think, isn't that how we try to do this thing sometimes? I'm going to take on the whole team. I'm going to take on the powers of hell. I'm going to bind evil and I'm going to loose the kingdom. I, 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 I. Wrong. Jesus never intended you to go do it yourself. Binding and loosing and the ministry of bringing heaven to earth is not me, myself, and I going and being a vigilante for the kingdom. It is us together standing in the authority of Christ and the delegated authority that he's given to the church together. It's why we need each other. It's why corporate prayer times are so critical. Because where do you bind and loose with other believers if you're not praying with other believers? It's not just something to show up to just because, ah, it's a checklist. How do we bind and loose and bring heaven to earth in prayer if I'm just praying by myself at home? Jesus gave us the way to bring the kingdom. Last thought is this as we wrap up. In all of this, there's tension. And we have to remain in the tension. The tension is that the church must live in the tension of being here on earth, but bringing the realities of heaven to earth. We have to remain in the, in the tension of reflecting Christ and loving others and making disciples in a world that is an absolute mess. Peter, 
in 1 Peter 2, and I, and I believe this is just how I'm going to close us, is just by reading that for us, and then we'll close with the last song. Peter speaks of believers who are living not with power, but who are living and suffering like Jesus did. Believers who live in the tension of the power and victory of Christ, but yet not using the power and victory of Christ in a way that powers up, but rather embraces humility and weakness. See, the church can very much be here, but out of place. If we adopt the ways of the culture and the ways of the world to enact the victory of Christ and to live in the power and authority of Christ, Jesus, Jesus came as the suffering servant, came as the lamb. He did not come as the lion when he came. He will one day to make all things right. But he has not called the church to be the lion. He's the lion. And he will come when it's time to be the lion. He's called the church to be like him and to be the lamb. You're like, ah, I don't know about buy that. Here's where I want to just read this and then wrap up. First Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Just listen. If you don't have a Bible, listen to this. And remember who is speaking this. This is Peter. The guy who in the Garden of Eden grabbed a sword from a soldier and whacked off the high priest's servant's ear. Understand what's going on. Emperor Nero is arresting, persecuting, and killing Christians. He's lighting them on fire in his gardens. He's throwing them in the lion's den. He's throwing them in the Colosseum and letting the lions loose for Rome to watch and their bloodthirst to be quenched. This is Peter writing to the church at Rome. As you come to him, verse 4, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices accepted to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, see I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, the stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. 
Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it's God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it's commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he's conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, that is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you, like sheep, you were like sheep going astray, but now... You have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. For the church of Rome, this is what it meant to be the people of God. For us today, we remember who our true owner is. It's Jesus, our true foundation. Remember the way of the kingdom, our place. Our place is to bring the kingdom to earth. And together, through the ministry that has been given to us of binding and of loosing, to welcome heaven to earth. This is not easy work. But it is what we are called to as the people of God. This is not an easy message. This doesn't make us feel warm and fuzzy. But but I, I believe it is the truth that we need to hear. That I need to hear. That we need to hear. And so we leave it to the Spirit's work in our lives and say, Holy Spirit, come and apply your word to my life and to us. May you reawaken us to the church of Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you. I thank you that once we were not a people, but now we are the people of God. I thank you that we are chosen. That we are living stones. That you are building into your church. I thank you that you've entrusted us with this great ministry. You're the rightful owner, but you've entrusted us 
to reflect your values here on this earth. You've entrusted us by the authority you've given to us to welcome heaven to this earth. Jesus, build your church. As the song says, build it from the ground up. Lord, build your church. For the glory of Christ, I pray. Amen.